From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. Everyone's like, cookbooks are over, everyone's on the internet. It's like, no, cookbooks tell a story. And, you know, I develop a narrative in my books. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. Now, you just heard from today's guest, David Leibovitz. David is the author of several cookbooks and memoirs, from his first book, Room for Dessert, in 1999, to his most recent, La Par, The Delights and Disasters of Making My Paris Home. After working in San Francisco restaurants and enrolling in chocolate school in Belgium, David landed in Paris, where he spent the better part of two decades writing cookbooks and sharing his Parisian life with the world via his popular and long-standing blog. This week on Salt and Spine, David joins us to discuss his cookbooks, his life from a Bonanza sirloin to Chez Panisse to Paris, and who has influenced him over the course of his career. Plus, we've got a recipe for David's Swedish chocolate oatmeal cookies. Let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where David Leibovitz joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, David. Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. (laughs) Oh, hi. How are you doing? I have pie in my mouth. (laughs) I know. We're we're recording on pie day, so Mm -hmm. we had to enjoy a little pie from our friends at Mission Pie. But welcome. Force-fed pie. (laughs) (laughs) There are worse worse things, right? (laughs) Hi. Thanks thanks for inviting me. If I knew it was pie day, I would have made one. Oh, well, you're busy. You're, you're on book yeah. tour. I don't know how much yeah. pie, pie making time you have. Yeah. And the flight attendants don't like it when I go in the kitchen to roll pie dough. So yeah, <laughs> or the people in the seat in front of me on the table, right. like, stop it. Stop <laughs> kicking. That's my rolling pin. Yeah. Well, welcome. I'm glad we could, we could greet you with some pie and welcome you back to San Francisco. So we're here to talk about a number of your different books. You've written now eight cookbooks. Is that right? Yes. And recently just re-released The Perfect Scoop, which is your ice cream book. Yeah, for the 10-year anniversary. Right. Yeah. I was just telling someone today, uh, when that book, when I had the idea, I sent it to, we sent it to an editor that really wanted it and she returned it and she goes, I don't want to do this book because you don't have a show on Food Network. Huh. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, should I get one? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it became the number one selling ice cream book in the world. Yeah. My publisher, 10 Speed Press, who's here in the Bay Area, right. they said it was the fastest acquisition of any. They have a meeting and they discuss all the proposals. They said it was the fastest acquisition of a book. And they're very supportive of the book over the years. Um, sure. We or they re-released it last year. Yeah. We did the whole book and it was great. It's a great book, and that's so interesting that an initial publisher was not interested in it. And the reason that you felt so compelled to do it, and that the publisher was maybe wrong, right, is that you'd you'd witnessed people who were taking classes of yours Mm -hmm. who were really interested in ice cream, so you knew you were onto something. Yeah, and then, you know, not to toot my horn, but um, (laughs) I was ahead of the curve, because all of a sudden there was a cooking revolution sort of brewing at that time, Yeah, Um, but people started getting into single-subject books. Um, especially with the internet now, if you want a cake recipe, you can sort of search for anything online. But people started getting interested in charcuterie, ice cream, Thai food, whatever. Right. right. So there was this ice cream book, and I wanted the book purposely to be sort of a guidebook, not necessarily something complicated, but just like the basics and all the mix-ins and all the toppings. Yeah. Well, let's go back a little bit then. Let's go back to the early days. I know okay. you started working in kitchens, restaurants when you were pretty young in your teens. Is that right? 16. I 16? worked at a strip mall. Okay. At a strip at a, mall. Yeah. Bonanza kind of Sirloin Pit. 
Okay. I was the dishwasher. Uh huh. And the waitresses wore Naga hide vests and aprons with brands on them. And the, the, the aprons, not the waitresses. <laughs> right. It wasn't San Francisco. Um, <laughs> and all the cooks were like macho line cooks. Right. And they, uh, you know, were abusive and swore a lot and drank a lot. And people always say, I want to do what you do. I'm like, okay, wash dishes for a year, you know. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Start there. Yeah. But it was, you know, it's where you start. You start at the bottom and work your way up, hopefully. And was, was that your trajectory? <laughs> Is that you knew you wanted to go into food or was it just a job? No, it was just a job. Okay. It's funny because I live in France and like kids right. don't have after school jobs there. It's not like you got to get a job in the summer, you know, it's like, right. no, we're going on vacation. Um, <laughs> right. So I had a job, you know, it was my summer job and weekend job. And then when I went to college, I sort of worked in restaurants to work my way through college and. You know, and I don't mean to say this in a bad way, but it's a low, you know, anybody, you don't have to have a degree to go work in a restaurant. So, yeah. But even, even in college, it hadn't really clicked for you yet. I think you were studying film in college. Yeah. yeah you know, <laughs> wow. um, yeah, um, I was, and I, I was very fortunate because I was going to school in upstate New York. Okay. And yeah. there was a restaurant that was buying all their food from the farmers directly. Not because this was before the whole farm to table movement. It's just because we lived in an agricultural community. So we knew all the farmers and they right. would come in and bring us food. And the owner of the restaurant didn't really believe in us using machines. She was like, no, we should chop food by hand and so forth. We had a blender. Um, and it was a very good education. I really learned how to cook. The food was really, it was a vegetarian restaurant. Okay. Um, so I really learned how to cook vegetables, you know, meat, you know, no, no offense to anybody who writes a meat cookbook, but vegetables are much harder to cook. Um, like be, cre- how do you be creative with vegetables? The steak you just put on the grill and it could be really good. Right. So you go from working at that vegetarian restaurant to then working at Chez Panisse. Maybe I'm fast yeah. forwarding a well, little I was gonna bit say, there. Wait, like- you missed like steakhouse and vegetarian <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but when um, it, eventually you land at Chez right. Panisse, right? And, yeah, I mean, and by that point it had clicked for you that like food yeah. was sort of the thing you wanted to do. Yeah. Well, I wanted to move. I wanted to live somewhere in America and for, I was sort of obsessed with the Chez Panisse menu cookbook, uh-huh. which was the first of the Chez Panisse books. Right. And I kept reading it going, Oh my God. You know, and uh, so I, I came to San Francisco and I said, I got to work at that restaurant. And I went in there and the chef said, get out. Um, I don't know who you are. You just walk in. You can't just walk in. And I'm like, uh, Oh, but I want to work here. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm um, a few months. I went to go work at Zuni. Uh-huh. This is when Zuni, Zuni was a coffee shop, sort of. It was only half the size it is now. Okay. And the drag queens would walk by and flash like tourists in the window. You know, right. it was funny. <laughs> it was great. And then there was an opening at Chez Panisse. So I ran back there. I was like, oh, sh- sh- sh. yeah. And they hired me. And I had the interview with Alice Waters uh-huh. and everyone coached me what to say to her. And she's going to ask you this, answer this. And I'm a terrible liar. <laughs> <Right>. So <laughs> makes you a, an honest interviewer then. Yeah. Um, and you spent. 12, 13 years working at yeah. Chez Panisse, but it was, it was really the Chez Panisse menu cookbook that sort of drew you. Yeah, there. because it spoke to me. The book yeah. was sort of a narrative. It's not just a cookbook. It's about a sort of a, not, I don't even want to say lifestyle because it's a kind of a weird word nowadays, but it was about a whole theory, a whole philosophy. And there was an interesting review recently. Um, it was sort of a reaction to a review in the Chronicle. Um, that wasn't necessarily positive about Chez Panisse. And Alice right. answered it really well. She said, you know, what we're doing here is not something, it's not, we're not thinking forward. You know, we're not trying to be innovative. We're trying to do good food and, you know, feed people and help farmers. And that's, that's our objective. We're not here to innovate or anything. Yeah. And that's true. Yeah. It is. And that's what they've accomplished for 40 plus years. Mm-hmm. 
how much did that influence you as you were sort of coming to terms with wanting to cook mm-hmm. in the food industry and then eventually sort of moving into pastry and desserts? Well, you know, pastry is a little different. Be- I mean, uh-huh. Chez Panisse also is very different because it is very fruit oriented. We use a lot right. of local products. Generally speaking, pastry chefs use eggs, butter, sugar, sure. chocolate, you know, coffee, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, seasonality is not thing, but so, you know, we combined both and that really stuck with me. But what really stuck with me about Chez Panisse was tasting food. So many times I go out to eat and I'm like, did anyone taste this? Like all it needs is this. And we used to taste things and I really learned how to taste. In French, it's a great word called exigent, which means discerning. Okay. Um, I used to say discriminating, but my partner who's um, French, he doesn't speak English. He's like, it's not discrimination. I'm like, <laughs> Well, it's a two, <laughs> right? Yeah. There's some nuance yeah, there. Discerning is a better word. <laughs> yeah. So you were, you're working at Chez Panisse and I think it was Alice Waters who encouraged you to write your first cookbook. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I wanted to do the next, Lindsay Shear had done this amazing Chez Panisse desserts book. Yes. And we had sort of evolved, you know, we kept going and I was working. I'd made a lot of desserts there and uh-huh. come up with my own things. Was that while you were there? That she did that book? Uh, yeah, I think it had just come out when I started in the pastry department. Okay. So that was a clear influence for you at the oh, time. Oh, yeah. She, I mean, she was my mentor in uh-huh. so many ways. Um, so, cause I had been working upstairs in the cafe for t- two years as a line cook. Right. And in those days, it was super busy. We didn't take reservations. So people would line up at 4.30. They would all come in. They, it was just a mob scene. And sure. It was so crazy. And even, you know, 11.30, they had to turn people away. It was just you know, out of control. So it was very influential for me to be in the pastry department there. Um, just because the ingredients are so good. We're so, we get yeah. like Lentmeyer lemons from trees, you know, and the neighbors and strawberries and raspberries and right. It just every day was like something beautiful coming in the back door. Did you feel attention with wanting to like feeling that pull towards things that were less sort of seasonal and fruit focused? Well, I love chocolate. Right. Um, and uh, if Alice is listening, Alice, <laughs> Alice is not a big fan of chocolate after a meal. Her idea of a really good dessert is a tangerine or some fruit. Right. She doesn't like to get full. I love chocolate. I love, <laughs> love, love chocolate. Yeah. So I left Chez Panisse and I went to chocolate school. I went to, <laughs> yeah. I went to chocolate school in Belgium and I went to school in France. Okay. Um, and I really learned chocolate. What does chocolate school look like? Like you go to Belgium and what do you learn in chocolate school? Um, it was just like, wow. Cause chocolate has to be manipulated. You know, you can make brownies with chocolate, uh-huh. but you don't really need to go to school to learn to do that. <laughs> right. Um, so I was learning how to temper chocolate, how to make candies, yeah. you know, filled candies, ganaches. And it was great because it was international. The teachers were, it was in Belgium, the first school I went to and the teachers were amazing. Um, one of the great things about Europe is you get these people who are real masters at what they do and they don't have an ego about it. Like the ones you see on TV do it, everyone's screaming, but the real chefs are happy that, you know, they learn the same way they had inter, they were apprentices and they were so nice and helpful and wonderful and talented. Yeah. There's a focus on the craft and it's focus on the, on the craft. I was also on sharing. Okay. I mean, sharing is so important. Right. Um, to me. And is this after your first cookbook that you're going to mm-hmm. chocolate school? Okay. So you yeah. wrote your first cookbook in 99 room yeah. for dessert. Uh-huh. And that's also when you launched your blog. Is yes. Right? Which it, is how many, many people across the world know you and know, know. of you. <laughs> What's amazing is I just realized it's 20 years old. Yeah. This year. Uh huh. I'm like, holy shoot. Yeah. Um, you, so you don't have to edit that out. That's um, okay. You can I'm curse so, on a, the podcast. I'm a self editing <laughs> interviewer. 
interviewee. Um, no, it was really interesting because when I started it, my book had come out. And I said, well, I want to have a website so people can ask me questions if they have problems with the recipes. That yeah. was the impetus, purely yeah. to be a Q&A. Yeah, because often okay. I'm making, I was making a recipe from a book and I was like, what did the author mean by this? Uh-huh. So this is like from the be careful what you wish for category. I started <laughs> right. this website so people can. And no one knew what a blog, it wasn't even a blog. It was a website that I was um, refreshing with new content every few weeks or every few days, whatever. Uh-huh. And then around 2004, blogging software became um, available. So I started doing it. And it's kind of funny how it's evolved since then. Yeah. So you, I mean, you were blog, you were blogging per se, like five years before WordPress. Oh yeah. 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 Well, there was before WordPress, there was movable type. Uh-huh. So I had to learn code and I'm like, I bake, you know, I make cookies and brownies and here I am like, okay, how do I put an accent over the A? You know, it's like you have to type like six characters. Yeah. <laughs> people write to me like a comment, like you forgot a, you know, that should be an accent the other way. I'm like, oh, I'm looking at a page full of letters. Yeah. Right. Has that sort of concept of the Q&A and being available to engage with people mm-hmm. been a through line in the 20 years you've been blogging? Yeah. I mean, that's what you do if you have a blog, you're sharing. Uh-huh. Um, it's, you know, when you write a cookbook, you're sharing. When you cook at a restaurant, you're sharing. Bakers share. No one makes a cake to, you know, to eat on their own. And, you know, even though we want, you're know, <laughs> plowing my way through these pies. And you're like, why doesn't he share with me? Because he's talking about sharing. You know, I also as bakers, like we started the Baker's Dozen in the Bay Area. Right. Because we all wanted to share with each other. And it was hundreds of people. And bakers do that. We share tips. You know, we used to email each other or call each other like, oh, where can I get this chocolate? Or can I borrow this? And bakers are kind of a worldwide network. And one of the things that happened when I moved to France, I would go into places and I would meet pastry chefs. They just kind of looked at me like some idiot from America. And then I talked to them, like start talking about what they were doing. And then they were like, something went off in their head. Right. They realized like, okay, he actually knows what he's talking about. So you moved to Paris (laughs) at at some point, right? You, you, uh, you uprooted your life and decided Mm -hmm. you wanted to live in Paris and you'd always had a fascination with Paris since you were pretty young or no? I would, well, I was never like a Francophile. I didn't have like Eiffel Tower. Power pillows on my bed. And, <laughs> right. you know, I didn't, you know, watch. You missed out. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I was, well, I was living in San Francisco in the 80s. Like, there was a lot of other things to do there. <laughs> um, but, you know, I realized this a few years ago, moving to France was a very horizontal move because the Bay Area is very similar to France. You know, the fascination with food, the goat mm-hmm. cheese, the herbs, the markets, the right. wine, um, Chez Panisse, you know, even right. Zuni, you know, all these places. Very, in, like, we're very influenced by Europe here in the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, And now it's interesting because they're sort of influenced by us with the sort of farm-to-table cooking that all the young people in France are rediscovering. Sure. Um, So it's a cycle, but it was a very horizontal move for me to move there. And I have no idea why I moved there because I didn't speak French. I knew two people. And it's funny because for years I was bored. I didn't have anything to do. So I would sit there and like read guidebooks like, where should I go eat today? Or where should I, what bakery? (laughs) Right. (laughs) But if I asked you why you moved to Paris, there's no like, no, there's no real reason. It was just where you landed. No, they always say you should know the answer to the questions that you don't (laughs) want to be asked because they're going to ask you that question. People always ask me that and I don't really know. Yeah. Um, but I think there was that horizontal move. And also I was very influenced by, um, there's a book called The Auberge of the Flowering Hearth. And I don't know if you read it. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing book about these two women who cooked in the French Alps. Right. And this guy visited every summer and wrote about them. And it's very, it's very, fantasy. I mean, it was real, but sure. it was a certain time in a place and that 
time and place are over, but it made me want to live there. Like sh- reading the Chez Panisse cookbook made me want to work and cook at Chez Panisse. Yeah. It made me, I was like, oh, this is so cool. These women and the, you know, this little stone in making their own liquors in the back. Right. And- I love that books have sort of guided you to these places, whether they're mm-hmm. restaurants like Chez Panisse or countries like mm-hmm. France. And when did you sort of know that you were at home in Paris? You've been there how many, a while now? Uh, 20 years. 20 ish, 20 ish. Gosh, maybe 18 years. Okay. Yeah. Um, I knew when people started, when I, when I started speaking better French, when I would just go up to people and talk to them and when people started treating me as a local. And oh, yeah. I, I sort of loathe that whole phrase, like live like a local, eat like a local. Cause I'm not, you know, it's okay to be a tourist. I was in Vietnam for three weeks. I didn't want to live like a local. I wanted to stay in a hotel. You know, I wanted right. towels. I wanted to go in the pool, you know? <laughs> right. So I was happy to be a tourist, but, um, yeah, it just, and I have a French partner, um, who's very, very French. I mean, if you look in the dictionary, you know, under Parisian, there's a picture of him <laughs> there. Um, but he's wonderful and his family accepted me right away. His parents loved me because I'd always bring cookies. Yeah. And they were like, Oh, he's Dave, the American is so nice. <laughs> yeah. Like I have a name. <laughs> <laughs> right. We'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with David Leibovitz. But first, a special promotion for Salt and Spine listeners. If you're a regular listener, you know we record all our episodes at the Civic Kitchen, the cooking school for home cooks in San Francisco's Mission District. And now through the end of April, Salt and Spine listeners get 25% off your first or next class at the Civic Kitchen using the promo code SALT25. Don't miss upcoming classes and events featuring cookbook authors as well. All you have to do is head to civiccitchensf.com, find the cooking class that's perfect for you, and save 25%. Remember to use the code SALT25, S-A-L-T-2-5, when checking out, and happy cooking. Now back to our conversation with David Leibovitz. Some of your recent books um, have adapted the cookbook sort of genre to include a lot more of your life mm-hmm. in Paris and your life in France, including your most recent, La Part, which is about mm-hmm. your purchasing yeah. and renovating of your apartment in Paris. Mm-hmm. How did you sort of decide to go from writing cookbooks to writing books that are sort of more about your life, but also still include recipes? Well, when I wrote uh, The Sweet Life in Paris, right. I think it was 2007 it came out. Um, I'd been living in Paris a little bit and people had started reading my blog and people were like, you should write a book about Paris. I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah. um, and it was sort of more vignettes of living in Paris. Right. And people love that, but like still today, people write, write to me and they're like, oh my God, we love that book. And um, somebody got the movie rights to it. And, you know, someday. I, so anyhow, um, but it's kind Is of. Is it going to be a movie? Who Is that knows? a preview? Who knows? Potentially? I don't know. Okay. I, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just have, I was like, do I get to pick who the star is? Who gets to play me and who gets to play Roman, my partner? There's a guy who's a, uh, Mike White, I think is his name. And okay. he was in a HBO. He was in School of Rock. I think he okay. wrote it and produced it. But he was in a show with, um, Laura Dern on HBO that was two seasons, Enlightened. And okay. he sort of played the nebbish next to her. I'm like, that's me. Okay. <laughs> so you're ready if you've yeah. got your casting done. <laughs> but, okay. you know, one thing about cookbooks, everyone's like, cookbooks mm-hmm. are over. Everyone's on the internet. It's like, no, cookbooks tell a story. And, you know, I develop a narrative in my books. So, like, my Paris Kitchen, mm-hmm. it actually wasn't really supposed to be a cookbook. It was supposed to be sort of a narrative about France. And my publisher um, said, well, you really do a cookbook. And you, I see, you know, the recipes are part of the story with La Parte aussi, also. 
<laughs> Whoops. Okay, was, um, we can be bilingual here. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, the story was um, what it is. Um, and the recipes are there to tell the story, but also kind of to lighten it up because it was a pretty heavy duty experience. Yeah. And when I was writing it, I was said to my editor, I thought, well, people are going to like flip out. And she said, well, that's okay. It's a different side of you. And it's a very different kind of book. Yeah. Um, but it really happened to me and people can't, don't believe it. I mean, really? yeah, well, they're like, I can't believe this could happen. And a lot of people are like, we felt really bad for you. I'm like, well, right. you know, so did I, but, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but you know, it has a happy ending. Yeah. Um, well, I don't want to spoil anything, sure. but you know, I, that's also when I learned that I was, you know, I felt accepted in France because I'd gone through this experience and I saw like people helping me and so forth. This concept of like telling stories and also including recipes and that sort of balance between a cookbook and a narrative driven work, I think is something you do particularly well. And you've said you love writing head notes, which I think mm-hmm. can be intimidating to a lot of people who are either new to cookbook writing or mm-hmm. not new to cookbook writing. Um, but you really love writing them. I do. It's hard though. Cause you're trying to, in, in Europe, actually, they don't use have head notes in cookbooks. They have the recipe. I'm like, Oh my God, I'd write so many books if I didn't write head notes. Right. But you're telling, you know, you're doing a se- several things. You're enticing people to do the recipe. You're giving them tips maybe for the recipe or telling them how to serve it. You know, uh, and I sort of right. do all three. And I also think, you know, you need to be interesting. You want to make people go, Oh, this story is interesting. And there's a tendency on the internet and other places. I always go right like you, like you talk. Uh-huh. You wouldn't say to somebody, you're going to l- enjoy this family friendly recipe because it serves six and your kids will be, you know, <laughs> like we don't talk like you're that. not a robot. Yeah. It's like, you know, you got, like if you get home from work every night at six 30 and you've just commuted and all you want is a Manhattan, right. you know, drink that first, you know, put this in the oven and then have your second Manhattan, you know, yes. so there's a way to make it much more interesting. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's a, it takes a while to do a good head note because you want to be, you want to get in and out. Well, and one thing I think that I love that you've done too is shared a lot of the uh, process of your cookbook creation on your blog. And you said it takes a while to write a good head note. It takes a while to yeah. write a good cookbook too. Yeah. And you spend quite a bit of time on some of your proposals. Yeah. On the front end. Yeah. And more than average. That's I would the bones say. of the, well, it depends. It's the bones of the book. Uh-huh. Um, and I've always had tough agents that are like, you need to redo this, a- this proposal and so forth. But often people say to me, how can you tell a good cookbook when you see it? Yeah. I said, well, look at it. Does the author talk about how they came up with the recipe? Same with even a blog post. You know, sure. you type chocolate cake and there's all these phony recipes online. Right. But you go to like a blog like mine or some in kitchen or 101 cookbooks. And the authors talked about it and they're showing pictures of the process. You read Alice Medrich's books, you know, she's a wonderful chocolate uh-huh. author and baker and so forth. And you know, the recipes work because she talks about, it. she's like, this is good. You know, I tried it with egg yolks and decided, you know, just to go with the nuts and yeah. so forth. How would your cookbooks have been different if you weren't blogging? Um, I think I'm much more personal in my books. Um, Stephen King wrote so this about that. He's like, don't worry about grammar. Don't worry about anything. Just write, write like you talk or write like your character talks. Uh-huh. It's true. And I oftentimes have to say to my editor, I know it's not grammatically correct, but right. that's how I would say it. <laughs> right. I understand their point of view because yeah. you don't want to have, you know, people write to me like you should have used a semicolon here, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. But yeah. On the other hand, a blog is more casual, but a book, you know, I try to be a little more tight in my books, more timeless, because sure. a blog is where I'm at now. Whereas if you open, you know, the perfect scoop 
or ready for dessert or my Paris kitchen. It's should, you know, everything's contemporary. I'm not, I don't want to date myself. Right. (laughs) For a while you were working in longhand. Do you still work longhand when you develop recipes? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Still today. Yeah. I, and it's funny because I save all my notes. You do. Okay. There's a big stack somewhere. Yep. Okay. And, you know, there was a, a few years ago, somebody won a cooking contest. They won $100,000 with one of my recipes. Okay. And I actually had all my testing notes because I, you know, and it shows like, okay, try six eggs. Okay. And I, you know, make notes to myself. Right. You know, cross out, you know, do this again, try this this way. Were you in on this or did they just take your recipe? And no, they took it. it. They um, just took it. Yeah. One of my readers sent it to me. I was like, she's like, did you see this? I was like, uh, uh, yeah. It's like she made more than I did. <laughs> <laughs> right. You've mentioned Alice Medrich. You've mentioned mm-hmm. a few authors. Are there particular authors who, cookbook authors who have been influential? We were just browsing a few <clears throat> before, but people who have really influenced you in the course of your career or books that have really made an impact on how you work? That's an interesting question because I'm looking at this wall of cookbooks here. And, you know, my cooking and my life are influenced by a lot of cook, like the Silver Palette cookbook, mm-hmm. you know, which is sort of not forgotten about now, but it was so radical when it came out. Somebody else said this and they said they knew what we wanted to eat before we did. Yeah. And they came out with this book I and it was like, true. I want to eat that. I want to eat that. It was like, you know, I wish I, I could steal that, but yeah. I had to give it. So that kind of book, it was like, oh, wow, this is sort of audacious, but normal. Right. Um, so that book really inspired me. Um, you know, I've been inspired all over the place. Uh, you know, reading French cookbooks, reading books about the Basque region or Alsace uh-huh. or the Alps. I'm looking at all your books and yeah, I'm even a- reading Harold <laughs> McGee, just food science. Sure. Um, yeah. I was so interested in him. And right. I still am. Right. Now I know when, when you moved to Paris, you, I want to say famously, because I feel like I've, I've seen you tell this story <laughs> in many other places. I don't, but, everyone else tells it. I don't. <laughs> but you sort of tragically lost some of your cookbook collection. Mm-hmm. Well, the U.S. post office said that it's not their fault, and La Poste in France said it's not their fault. So somewhere somebody's got, because I was very, at Chez Panisse, these people used to come in and eat, like Richard Olney, Julia Child, Jane Grigson. Yeah, everyone was like stunned to see Julia Child in the kitchen. And I'd always talk to them because I love talking to like famous people. But I leave, you know, I give them their privacy. But sure. they all sign books to me. Right. And those are all the books. You posted on Instagram recently that you said my first cookbook and it was a picture of the peanuts cookbook. <laughs> was that actually your first cookbook? It was. Well, probably. I mean, okay. what I didn't show because it was really funny. I should have brought it. If you had brought it up, I would have shown it to you. Yeah, but, I don't know if I have a copy, but well, you won't see it because I hand wrote inside <laughs> oh. like, you know, with my address and my phone number. Uh-huh. And I was probably like seven and I said like reward, like return. <laughs> but I wrote some like really wacky thing about it was like trying to be funny and it wasn't (laughs) (laughs) yeah so that was really funny i love that there's a reward you also um you wrote once um that you have been obsessed with chocolate since you were a kid and you Mm. called out a specific cookbook too that i want to mention the settlement cookbook oh yeah yeah, that your mother used when you were a kid um and that you would cook from there so even before, like we talked about you working mm-hmm. in restaurants in your teenage years, but even before that, you sort of had an interest in food to some mm-hmm. degree. Well, you know, it's funny. I was recently on Christopher Kimball's show uh-huh. of Milk Street Kitchen in Boston. Right. And he goes, I love baking because you're, it's transforming food. And I think that I was always interested in transforming things. And that's what chocolate 
you sort of have to transform it into, I mean, you don't have to, but usually it's transformed. And so my first experience, my mother had a settlement cookbook. There was uh-huh. that unsweetened baker's chocolate. So I made a souffle in a Pyrex cup and <laughs> it was good. Yeah, it was really good. It's hard to go wrong with chocolate souffle, but I was, tr- I think I was interested in transforming. Um, you're probably too young to remember this, but there was good season salad dressing. Yeah, I don't no, remember that. Okay. Oh, you. Okay. What what is good well, season? It was this powdered salad dressing mix, but they would okay. you would buy the they'd sell it attached to a glass carafe and on the carafe it said like vinegar, water, oil. Oh, yeah. So you put okay. that, then you'd add the vinegar, oil and water. Yes. You shake it. And I, I was fascinated by that too, the envelope and so yeah. yeah. That was like a real trend for a while. Now I'm thinking I remember my parents having different like glass measuring yeah. things that had like cocktail recipes all around and yeah but the good like, seasons was was a real um it was really like revolutionary it was okay um because it sort of got people into making salad dressing yeah which it's like those meal kits for better or worse it's like people are cooking and right and then you realize i don't need mix i can make salad dressing i don't you know, need this powder it's the gateway drug yeah We talked with Rose Levy Berenbaum about um, when cake mixes were first invented, and originally you didn't need to do anything but add water to them, Mm -hmm. and people didn't feel like they were cooking. So they pulled it back, and they're like, okay, let's add egg and Mm -hmm. oil, and now you feel like you're baking a cake. And there are like weird mixes um, where you're like, you know, I've seen these mixes a lot, and they're like, add your own melted butter, and I'm like, well, why do I need a mix? I don't need to buy like sugar, flour, and water. You know, you're like one one step removed from actually, you know. Everyone's different, and right. I don't think you, you know, shaming people for what they do is a good strategy to, you know, make people feel included in cooking. Yeah. And, you know, not everyone wants to make cassoulet. A lot of people have kids. Right. You know, if I had, like, every day I'm like, I can't even get through the day, like, dealing with my own stuff. If I had three kids, I'd be like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> everyone, in your room, you know, you can come out tomorrow morning. You know, right. It's only three <laughs> o'clock, Dad. You know? <laughs> right. We talked about how your books have been influenced by your career in blogging, but there's also been like a larger conversation around cookbooks in the past, you know, mm-hmm. few years and whether they're going to continue to exist. Will they all become oh, yeah. digital, et cetera? That sort of conversation. Mm-hmm. You've sort of had the luxury of being both a phenomenal cookbook author mm-hmm. and a phenomenal food blogger. You sort of bridge that gap between the digital and the non-digital. Well, what do I, you see for the industry? When I started blogging, a lot of my friends who are cookbook authors were like, don't do that. It's crazy. You're crazy. Da, da, da. And I understand that. Um, <laughs> but I was like, well, I felt like doing this. I didn't, wasn't, I didn't have a goal. Like my goal was not to make a million dollars a year. I mean, now it is, but, um, right. <laughs> my, you know, my goal was to share recipes and share my experiences in France and elsewhere. So, and actually when I started my blog, I remember telling a friend of mine who has a really huge food blog. I said, my, it's not a food blog. My, mine's not a food blog. Okay. She looked at me like, you're nuts. But <laughs> getting back to your story about our cookbooks obsolete, no. Cook, the cookbook business is very robust. And, you know, to just to, you know, I don't want to pump up the ego of my the publisher, but 10 Speed Press has done a really good job of finding people who really are good authors. And they do a really good job, like design, photography, um, doing quality books. You get a really good book. You're like happy. And so I think that really helps the cookbook field. And you have people from all over, like Chrissy Teigen sure. wrote this book that's really good. Everyone loves it. Right. Um, you know, then you have Ina Garten, right. who's a big success in Reed Drummond, the pioneer woman. Uh-huh. You know, she has her own audience. Um, you know, people want to see a picture of her cracking an egg. Right. Um, but those people, they need to see it and they feel like they're there and it's great. Yeah. I feel like you 
had three totally different audiences there, from Chrissy Teigen yeah. to Ina Garten yeah, to Reed Drummond. But yeah, but that's why the that's cookbook the scope. was, you know, you go to a bookstore and some of us, you know, want to pick up a book by Paula Wolfert. Right. We want to learn how, you know, we might not want to make the kuski, you know, but we want to learn. We're interested yeah. in it. And some of us want to, you know, make rainbow sprinkle ice cream. Sure. So, you know, there's something for everyone and that's good. And, and the cookbook business is robust. Well, we always end with a little game. So I have this little like fun secret ingredient deck that we use sometimes with okay. totally random secret ingredients. I thought we'd play a little game of um, having you draw a few secret ingredients and see if you can imagine making a famous French dessert for us using that secret ingredient. That's a very sh- small... So uh, it could be a profiterole, it could be a Queen Amon, it could be a crepe, it could be a declare, you know, what okay. have you. All right, let's see. What's the first one? Pickle. You've got pickles and pickle juice. Can you turn it into a yeah. French dessert? Perfect. Uh, well, I would... Uh, French is tough. Because, okay, but the dessert, maybe. Yeah. Well, actually, you know what? You could do like a pineapple tart tatin and glaze it with some pickle juice oh. um, while it's, you know, after it comes out or put some in the caramel because it's got vinegar, it's got spices, and I mean, there's garlic in it a little bit, but okay. I think that yeah. would go away when you taste the... So I would use the juice. Okay. A pineapple tart tatin. They make um, popsicles out of pickle juice. Right. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I thought we were going to stump you and you pulled pickle and you just nailed the first dessert. In Paris, they did it. They blindfolded me and they gave me things to taste. And and one of them was a croissant stuffed with a Big Mac. Oh, no. I said, don't ever do that to me again. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I can't imagine. Okay. All right. What's our second round? Thai bird chilies. Oh, Thai bird chilies. Okay. Oh, it's from Kenji Lopez Alt. Okay. Hi, yeah. a food off. Uh, fellow, food lab. fellow cookbook author. Yeah, I love Kenji. Um, Thai bird chilies. I would put the, I would dry them and put the powder in a croissant. Okay. I would do a spicy croissant, um, dial up the butter flavor somehow, uh, maybe use, um, cultured butter that's a lot more milky tasting. Uh-huh. So it, the, the chilies are a little more, um, moderated. Yeah. And dairy has a effect on chili where it tones it down. Right. So I'd put a little bit of chili in and maybe some other kind of Middle Eastern or North African spice. Okay. Like sumac. Okay. And make something because the French love North African foods. Right. But maybe make some sort of a chili spice croissant. Okay. Croissants are trendy now. We do matcha croissants and, and all these things. And they're huge in San Francisco. <laughs> right. So yeah. I don't know. I feel like a Thai chili croissant could work. Okay. Well, all if right. you start saying them next week, <laughs> yeah, you we, heard it we here know first. The commission. Yeah, I want my $100,000. <laughs> yeah. All right. What's the last round? Oh, this is easy. Peppermint. Oh, peppermint. Yeah. yeah. Oh, this will be fun, though. Tell well, us a great peppermint dessert. I love chocolate and peppermint. I yeah. would do a chocolate peppermint declare. I oh, love dark delicious. chocolate and I love peppermint together. How about ice cream? Are you a fan of oh, peppermint yeah. ice cream? Yeah. yeah. I love, I made it, it was funny because I made it on my blog and I was like, where am I going to get candy canes in Paris? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I found some because there's these places online that sell American things. Okay. They sell like Doritos and Crisco. Right. And, yeah. Um, right. Well, thank you so much, David. This was so much fun. Well, great. Thanks for inviting me. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all episodes on saltandspine.com. There you'll find a recipe for David Leibovitz's Swedish Chocolate Oatmeal Cookies. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. 
Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan Stewart, and our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Greetings Adventurers is an award-winning comedy real play D&D podcast that has been running for a decade with 427 episodes in our first campaign. I didn't have back problems or kids when we started. My favorite thing about the show is that it's a group of friends playing D&D who don't take anything too seriously. Right, like would a normal group use a sphere of annihilation as a toilet? We threw so much mayonnaise in there. We just started a new campaign, so it's a great time to jump in. Or you can listen to our first level one all the way to level 20 adventure and have hundreds of hours of entertainment. New episodes every Monday, so listen to Greetings Adventurers on ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>